Hi, this is Terry, producer and co-host of this podcast. Bridget and I are taking a couple weeks to do research and interviews before we start season 17 of this podcast in April. Today, please listen to this episode from our archive. Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. Two reports in the news recently caught our attention, and both are about the language of depression and suicide. So that's our focus today. First, a new report from the Crisis Text Line, a text-based suicide hotline here in the U.S just identified the keywords that texters use that indicate they are at high risk of suicide. And they're a bit of a surprise. Nancy Loveland, the text line's founder, says most people guess the words are help, sad, or desperate, words that communicate awful feelings. But using technology to analyze the more than 129 million messages the text line has fielded since launching in 2013, they've learned the words to actually look for are those related to the mode of attempting suicide. Specifically, Excedrin, Ibuprofens, Acetaminophen, like Tylenol, 800 milligrams, and most of all, the pill emoji. Crisis Text Line's data scientists came up with that list of words that precede an escalation using an algorithm that allows their counselors to prioritize 86% of the highest risk texters and move them to the front of the line, similar to triage done in a hospital's emergency room. Crisis Text Line recently published those keywords in a report called Everybody Hurts, the State of Mental Health in 2020. The organization hopes that this information and the mental health statistics of all 50 states will be used by researchers and academics to dig deeper into what causes depression and anxiety. And they're helpful things for all of us to know as parents and others who interact with the primarily younger people who use the text line. Absolutely. The second language-related news comes from an article in The Conversation titled, People with Depression Use Language Differently. In it, the researcher writes, quote, from the way you move and sleep to how you interact with people around you, depression changes just about everything. It's even noticeable in the way you speak and express yourself in writing. How so, we wondered. So we reached out to the UK author to talk about his findings and what we can learn from them. Hello. Hello there. How are you? Hi there, it's Mo speaking. Can you hear me? I can. Is Mo what you prefer to be called? Oh yeah, that's fine. Mo's perfect. So, Mo it'll be. But we also want to introduce him a little bit more formally before we begin. I'm Mohamed Al-Masawi, Dr. Al-Masawi, uh, PhD psychologist. Um, I am specialized in mental health issues, specifically the language um, of mental health. That's what my research is mostly focused on so far. 
And my super specific interest would be absolutist thinking and the absolutist words that people use uh, who have mental health problems, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. Absolutist thinking. It's what us lay folk might call all or nothing or black or white thinking. It doesn't leave room for different perspectives or the grays in life. And Mo says the words associated with it can help accurately predict whether someone is suffering from depression. I strongly believe that people with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, it wasn't so much that they had negative content in their mind, which is the uh, established position, which is, you know, people with depression are, are negative thinkers. And so the focus is on the content of their thoughts and the negative ideation that they have. I was more interested in the process of their thoughts, how they actually think. Using his research lab, Mo conducted a data text analysis of online mental health forums, examining posts from more than 6,400 members. This next part's a little bit academic, but bear with us. The research shows that I think depressed people use absolutist words like completely, always, never. Uh, there's like, I think there's a list of about 15 of them. 50% more than non-depressed controls. Uh, and it's the same for anxiety as well. And with suicidal ideation, it's 80% more than non-depressed control. So you see, as the severity of the illness increases, you get a corresponding increase in the rate of absolutist words used in language. So I'm assuming when you say always and never that you don't mean things can always change or my depressive episodes never last. You mean it the opposite way, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's saying things can always change is, is an interesting way of flipping it. What you're essentially, you're, you're absolutist about being flexible in that sense. Um, so, no, what I, the absolutism that I'm talking is more of a rigid mindset. So I'd love people to think I think can always change. That's actually... That's essentially the only form of acceptable absolutist thinking, which is to be absolutist about flexibility. That's a, a very healthy way to think. What we find is it's all the other types of absolutism. It's I'm an absolute loser. Or I'm always lonely. What the computer does, and my studies use computers to analyze uh, language, they look at the functional words like always. Because if you say I'm sometimes lonely, that's normal. That's everybody is sometimes lonely. It's the always that makes the loneliness a pathology. Which begs the chicken or egg question. If, as people with depression, we think in absolute terms, is that because of our depression? Or does having those kinds of thoughts contribute to our depression? Mo says most research suggests the latter. So how is this information useful in terms of us recognizing perhaps the thinking in ourselves or hearing it in someone else and being aware that they may be vulnerable? Yeah. So first of all, it's recognizing it because we focus on the content of what someone's saying rather than the style of how they're saying it. So one thing to do, first thing, is just to be aware of the style of how people are speaking and whether they are being absolutist or non-absolutist. You then have to do what's called disputing. And then this just comes from the clinical literature, which is to challenge that. Um, and you, sometimes you can even challenge it quite aggressively. So, for example, if I say um, I'm always lonely challenge that am i always lonely have have i never not been lonely is that because as soon as you find one chink in the absolutism um you break the absolutism so it, it, and, and and as soon as you break the absolutism you'll see that their thinking becomes a lot more flexible and you can do that for yourself you can do that for other people depending on who has the problem does the breaking of it last 
is this just something you have to learn to keep doing every time those thoughts come into your mind? Or once you start challenging those thoughts, do you have them less? The absolutist mindset will often have taken a lifetime to develop because the person who's depressed will have spent years telling themselves that they're a complete loser or that they're, you know, they'll never get anything right. that, That cognitive pattern has taken a long time to substantiate. So it takes a long time to remove. It's not a case of just, oh, yeah, you're right. I've realized the problem here. And now the rest of my life is different. That'd be nice, though, wouldn't it? But given the realities of change... How can thinking about the way we think help us manage our depression? If you're you're speaking to a therapist or you're with a therapist, discuss it with them. If not, think about it for yourself. Is there something that that you believe is all-consuming or has to be that way? What what, um, Albert Ellis refers to as demands, demands that you make either on the world or on yourself. And once you find those demands, you then have to challenge challenge them, challenge the absolute. Hopefully, you develop a new flexible pattern of thinking where you see things much more rationally. Because that's the key thing about absolutism, is it's fundamentally not rational. There, is, there are no absolutes in the world. That you, you know, nobody gets everything wrong. Nobody is always a loser or anything like that. Um, so it's, it's a fundamentally misguided way of viewing the world. And it's just a case of seeing how misguided and irrational it is. And again, and practicing it and practicing it over and over again, because like you said, it's not a, it's not a simple cure. And I'm assuming you would have to do that practice when you are not depressed, because when those thoughts, I will, I am always alone, nobody cares, I will never be happy again. I can't really imagine myself lying in bed having those recurring thoughts thinking, will you really never feel happy again? You know, I'm not sure that somebody in depression has the clarity or the distance to question their thinking. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and that is a problem that I found as well. When, when I speak to people with depression is they say, it, when you're in that state, yeah, you, you, you don't have enough clearness of mind to be able to start analyzing yourself and doing all those things. But, which is why, to some extent, this is more useful to people around other people who have depression to help them out when they're not able to see things clearly for themselves. And and uh, and step in with the right kind of advice, um, focusing on, you know, what, what is the what what is the style of thinking here, and can I challenge this absolutist negative uh, mindset? And as someone who, um, while it may be very healthy and good for me, might resist having someone challenge my thinking, I I pr- would prefer, I think, to add this to what we call our toolbox and to say almost like homework, you know, that there are some things that we have to do to prevent getting back into it. And this could be part of it by really challenging our thinking when we're well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, one of the key issues is actually even identifying what the absolutist thought is, because for a lot of people, it'll be different things. You know, if you have self-esteem issues, it'll be different to if you have anger management issues, which will be different to if you have social anxiety. Each one has its own absolutist thought, whether it's people must like me or um, I must be respected or I'm always a loser. These are all absolutist thoughts and these are all demands that you're making on the world. But each one has a different pathology associated with it, whether it's anxiety, depression, or uh, anger management. But so it's it's also a case of identifying what what it is for this particular person or for yourself that is that is the key problem. 
So as you do this research, what is your dream or best hope for how it's used and how it helps people with depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts? Um, one thing is I'd like to, so in the clinical in clinical practice, there's a, a heavy focus on negative thinking, which is, as I said, the content of thoughts. I'd like to just shift that a little bit towards the process of thinking, what I call the cognitive distortions and the chief cognitive distortion, which is absolutist thinking. So not to say negative thinking doesn't matter or anything like that, but I just think there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on negative thinking and a little not, and not enough emphasis on the style and process of thinking. So that's one thing. Another is using technology and text analysis programs, like the Crisis Text Line does, to better study, understand, and ultimately guide people to the specific treatment they need to live healthier, fuller lives. I think this is really good timing for me, Terry. I have noticed this past week that this narrowing of the internal lens that, that then gets smaller and more rigid and more negative and more absolute uh, in my thoughts and in my like shaming of myself and shaming of others. It, you know, it, it's as if it's as if the more out of balance, the more, I guess those are the words narrow and rigid that my like internal lens gets. That's fascinating. Is this have anything to do with getting sick or do you think this is a depression oh. thing? For sure, that's part of what I'm out of balance with. But I, I have actually, maybe for the first time ever, heard, you know, when I'm saying, you always blah, 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 it, regardless if I'm speaking to myself or somebody else, I, I'm actually hearing myself going like, uh-oh, you're getting pretty negative. And now I have a new word. I'm getting pretty negative and absolutist. Good. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's true. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you're thinking that way and feeling that way, but I'm glad you now have a new word for it and a new awareness of it. I have, I have a list because, to be honest, the word absolutist was a new one for me. So I printed out words that are absolutist words, and I'd just like to read a few um, so that it becomes you know, applicable and real. Mm-hmm. And, and the ones that I chose were absolutely all, always, completely, constantly, every... Every's a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Never, nothing. It's those kinds of words, right? It's right. like there's a hardness and a rigidity and a negativity to them that's just absolutist. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that he used the word demands, that they're basically demands we're putting on ourselves or our world, and that the world isn't an absolute place and nothing's always and nothing's never. So it's a, it's a, it is a good thing to think about. It's a little academic, a little more academic than a lot of our, our episodes are. But even if the takeaway is just a little ding, you know, going off when you start using that language and, and reeling it in a little bit. Exactly. Um, could be a very useful thing, which is why we did it. Exactly. So thank you, Mo, for your time, for explaining your work to us. And uh, we appreciate you making us more aware of the word choices and thoughts that we have and use. And Terry, I will always completely and absolutely and constantly love you. <laughs> well, I've never heard that before, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Bridge. Bye.
We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.